If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8 this morning. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. For those of you who uh, are with us uh, on a regular basis, you know we've been uh, taking a walk through the book of Acts. uh, And we uh, have been in the book of Acts for a little over a year now, but this morning, uh, since Pastor Richard is away. We're going to take a break from that and and look here in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 18. So uh, if you have it, I would invite you to stand with me if you are able. Uh, We believe that this is God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. And so let's stand together uh, and hear God's word this morning. Luke 18. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the words, Lord, this morning. Let's, Let's go to him and ask him for his help as we study. Lord God, we come again to you thankful, thankful that we don't serve a God who is silent, but a God who has revealed himself by your word. Lord, I pray that as we uh, take a moment to, uh, to look at it, to study it, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are willing and excited to obey. Pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> I think one of the things about growing up as a Christian, uh, we, we all have these little Christian sayings that we say from time to time. Uh, and it's pretty interesting now, having lived in a, a couple of different cities and set in different areas, uh, a lot of the Christian sayings, these little short phrases that I heard growing up in the church, uh, I think you guys uh, have heard and have said as well. Uh, so it's pretty neat that sometimes, you know, we can be having a conversation and I can begin to say one of these little Christian phrases that I've always heard said. Some of them are based off of Scripture or principles of the Scripture. uh, And you can almost finish my sentence. Uh, It's pretty neat. Uh, But one of those sayings that I always heard when I was growing up, and and it wasn't until later on in life that I really began to think and say, you know what, I kind of disagree with this. (laughs) I I don't think this is an issue. Uh, The saying uh, that I heard growing up was, you don't want to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. You guys ever heard that? You guys grow up hearing that. Maybe some of you guys have said that. Uh, or maybe just because I just said that I don't agree with it, maybe you're not going to fess up to it. I've said it before, uh, right? You don't want to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't really struggle with that. Uh, my struggle oftentimes is with the exact opposite, I think. Sometimes I think that I can be so earthly minded that I am zero heavenly good. 
right? I, I have honestly never met a person, and, you know, I'm only 30 years old, and so, you know, time will tell, but I, in my 30 years on this earth, uh, I have never met a single person in my entire life that was so heavenly-minded that they were no earthly good. I've never met that person. Maybe they're out there, uh, but I, I've never seen them before. Now, <clears throat> how, how does that, how... We just got through singing, too, about, about heaven and this hope that we have, uh, the, the surety of the coming of Christ and, and, and the fact that we're going to sit around the table of the Lord and He will wipe away the tears from our faces and there won't be any more death or sin or sickness. What does that have to do with this parable that we just read about prayer? It, it, it seems kind of at the surface level, that these two things are in two totally different categories. You've got prayer and kind of the normal Christian disciplines of, of the Christian life. And then you have this hope of, of the return of Jesus one day. But I hope that we see in our text this morning that, that these things are very much related to one another. The, the fact that Jesus calls us to pray in light of the surety of His second coming, those two things are so woven together in the New Testament that you can't separate them. Now, where do I get this? And if you just read the parable, avoid of any context, uh, I can see where you get there, but you're going to have problems. If you read this parable about this unrighteous judge and this nagging, persistent widow, you're going to think, what in the world is Jesus talking about at the end of the parable when He says... When the Son of Man comes, will he find faithfulness on earth? You see, if you, if you take this parable and rip it from its context, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Or at least it's very shallowly applied. The, the context of this parable actually begins in Luke chapter 17, starting back in verse 20. So if you look down in Luke 17, back up a page, or back up a few verses, and look down in verse 20, you see this conversation with Jesus and the Pharisees, and Jesus and his disciples begin. Now, scholars have labeled this conversation the eschatological discourse. Now, that's just a big fancy way of saying that this conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples and with the Pharisees is about the second coming of the Lord. It's, it's about the kingdom of God coming in its fullness. So in, in, in chapter 17, verse 20, the Pharisees ask Jesus a question. They say, when is the kingdom of God going to come? When is the kingdom of God going to be here? And Jesus answers them and responds to them very interestingly. He says to the Pharisees, you look for signs and you look for wonders that the kingdom of God is here. By the way, it's really interesting that they're looking for signs and wonders when just a few verses before this, a few verses before the Pharisees asking this question, Jesus is just healing people left and right, uh, curing them of all kinds of uh, of leprosy and sickness and all kinds of things. And, and then the Pharisees have the audacity to come to Jesus and say, you know, give me a sign, give me a wonder telling me when the kingdom of God is going to come. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees. He says, you look for these signs, you look for these wonders, but the kingdom of God is standing right in your midst. He says, the kingdom of God is here, 
because the king is here and I'm staring at you in the face. The Pharisees didn't understand that Jesus was the promised king of God. Or at least they didn't want to accept that truth, right? And and, and so Jesus, in one breath, looks at the Pharisees and says, you think that the kingdom of God is far off, that it hasn't come yet. But in fact, the king is here. I'm talking to you. Hello, I'm speaking to you. The kingdom of God is here. But then he turns, and in verse 22, he looks at his disciples and he says, now listen, there is coming a day when you will long to see the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a title that Jesus takes from the Old Testament, from Daniel chapter 7, and he applies it to himself. It is a messianic title. Uh, if you read Daniel chapter 7, this, this one, this figure, like the Son of Man, comes riding on a cloud, and he, he does away, he, he destroys this image of this beast that is uh, prouncing all over God's elect, all over his people. And Jesus takes that title and he applies it to himself and he says, I am the promised one from Daniel chapter 7. And he looks at his disciples and he says, there is coming a day when you will desire to see the Son of Man and I will not be here. So in one breath, Jesus says, the kingdom is here. But in the very next breath, he tells his disciples, there is going to be a time in which the king will not be present. So the kingdom is already here in one sense. Christ has come. Uh, He has lived a perfect life. He's died on the cross to to take the punishment for our sins. He's raised from the dead, giving us hope for new life, ushering in this new creation. But what they didn't expect is that there was going to be an uncertain amount of time between the resurrection and ascension of the king and the coming of the king in his full glory to usher in the kingdom in its fullness. And Jesus is telling his disciples, looking at them in the face, knowing that they are, many of them, most of them, were about to die for their faith. And he says to them, there's a time that I'm not going to be here and you're going to wish that I was. So how do we make it? We're still in that time today. We're in these last days. When you read the scripture and the scripture talks about living in the last days, that's that's living in the time since Jesus' resurrection and ascension until the day that he comes back again. People ask me all the time, do you think we're living in the last days? And I said, yes, and we have been for about 2,000 plus years, right? We've been living in the last days for a long time now, right? But it's those last days that weren't expected, right? So how do we faithfully persevere in these last days? Well, then Jesus looks at his disciples and he tells them a parable about how it is they are to pray and persevere you see jesus is teaching his disciples that a key a key to faithfully persevering in these last days is that you are to faithfully and persistently pray our prayer is deeply tied to a persevering faith that longingly waits for the return of the king it's how we stand up and that's how we are to persevere in these last days That brings us to our verses these morning. That brings us to this parable this morning. And so oftentimes when I preach, uh, I I like to give you just kind of a one-sentence summary of what I think the passage is talking about so that you can take that home and chew on it and and, and think about it and and remember what it is that the sermon was about. So here's my one-sentence summary of what I think Luke 18, 1 through 8 is about. Here we go. 
Prayer is a God-given means by which we patiently persevere as we wait for the Lord's return. Okay? Prayer is a God-given means by which we patiently persevere as we wait for our Lord's return. How is it that prayer helps us to persevere until the Lord's return? How, how does prayer do that in a Christian's heart? That's what this parable teaches us. If you're taking notes, that's, uh, we'll begin there in point one in your notes. Prayer, how does God do this? Prayer strengthens our trust in God's goodness. That's the first way that prayer prepares us and, and, and helps, helps us to patiently persevere as we wait for God's return is that it strengthens our trust in God's goodness. So Jesus, looking at his disciples, teaches them this parable. And, and Jesus says, or, the, or Luke tells us right off in verse 1 what this parable is about. It's about how they're supposed to pray and about how they're supposed to not lose heart. How they're supposed to persevere under trial and difficulty, right? How they're supposed to pray and how they're supposed to not lose heart. And then he introduces us to these two characters in this really short parable. The first character that we see is a judge. Uh, now, back in uh, the biblical days, uh, every town or every city would have at least one judge, sometimes a group of judges. Uh, we know, uh, we've seen in the Bible how these judges uh, often did open courts uh, where many times they would be standing at the gates of a city, uh, and there you could go uh, to that judge, uh, and they would oversee basically a um, some type of dispute, or if there were any type of legal matter that needed to be taken care of in, re in regard to inheritance or anything, uh, they could go to these judges, and these judges could then give legal rendering uh, as to how their case ought to be settled. And so here, there is this judge in this unknown city, and we catch a glimpse of the heart of this judge, what type of man he is. Look down in verse 2. He says, there was, a certain, or there was in a certain city a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. This is a wicked judge, right? As a matter of fact, he is not a very just judge. The, the foundation of justice in our world even today, right, are these two things, the fear of God and the respect of man. If you, if you lose those two things, uh, really you know, justice cannot be fully served, right? <clears throat> the fear of God and, and respect for man. And, and, and this judge has regard to neither of those things. So he is a, a wicked and evil judge. <clears throat> now a widow comes to this judge, and we'll talk about the widow more in just a second, comes to this judge and, and brings her request to him. There's some type of adversary going on. There's, there, there's somebody who is causing this widow great harm. And so she goes to this judge and she pleads her case for justice. And does the judge respond? No. He, he does not hear her pleas. Yet the widow does not give up. And, and look at how the judge eventually responds. Down in verse 4. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, and I think this is interesting because he's admitting his own wicked character, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down 
by her continual coming. Right? The widow has wore him out. <laughs> right? He is sick and tired of this widow coming to him. And so finally, not with regards to her condition or well-being, but simply for his own well-being, uh, he decides to render justice to this widow. Right? Perhaps she is uh, interrupting his routine, his life. Perhaps she is obviously taxing his patience maybe ruining his reputation in the city, whatever, he finally decides to give in, and he grants this widow justice. Now, when we study the parables, oftentimes there's one-to-one correlation in the parables uh, with one of the characters and the Lord, right? And what we need to be careful about when reading and studying this parable, we need to make sure that we don't make a one-to-one correlation between God and the judge, sometimes, sometimes the way parables work is they, he, the parable will highlight a character trait of God or, or something that God does by showing us the stark opposite, right? Sometimes the best way to learn what to do is by learning what not to do, right? So I, I, that's what's going on here in this parable. It's, it's kind of a how much more argument that Jesus is making. He says this judge Finally, down in verse 6, he says, hear what the righteous judge says, right? Finally, this judge gives uh, justice to this widow. And then he goes on to compare this judge to God negatively. And he says, will God not give justice to his elect? Will he not delay long over them? Will he not give them justice speedily? There is a stark contrast here between this wicked and and unfathomable judge and the God that we serve. Luke does this again in another parable when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. He's, He's teaching his listeners how to pray and he says to them, which one of you, if your child comes to you and says, I'm hungry, will you give me something to eat? Will instead give him a poisonous snake. Or will instead give him a scorpion, something that's going to harm him. And Jesus says, if you guys who are wicked and evil know how to give good gifts, how much more is a righteous God going to give good gifts to those who ask him? Same principle applies here in this, in this parable. If this wicked and evil judge will finally give justice to this widow, how much more would a God who hears and loves and has concern for justice and righteousness and for his people, how much more will he grant justice to those who cry out to him day and night? Brothers and sisters, we serve a good God who cares for you. He cares for you. And when we pray, it strengthens our confidence in the goodness of God. We don't pray to a God who does not hear and does not care. We pray to a God who infinitely is good and who infinitely cares. And when we go to God on our knees, we pray with confidence and boldness because of who it is we're praying to. Brothers and sisters, you pray to a God who loves you. You pray to a God who hears you. And you pray to a God who has infinite sovereignty and who
who can answer your prayers. So our prayer is tied to our perseverance in the faith in that it strengthens our confidence in the character of God. Point two. Another way that that prayer helps us in our perseverance and waiting for the Lord's return, prayer reorients our desires with the desires of God. It reorients our desires and brings them in line with the desires of God. You know, there's another little pithy Christian saying that we say all the time, this one I wholeheartedly believe in, and, and the saying goes like this, prayer changes things, right? Prayer changes things. You guys have said that before, right? You've heard that before. Prayer changes things. We believe that, don't we? As, as Christians, we believe that prayer changes things. But, but in light of this text, I, I want to amend that statement just a little bit. I wholeheartedly agree with it, but I want to amend it just a little bit. Prayer changes things starting with your own heart. Prayer changes things beginning with your own heart. We see this widow, okay, in the passage. Now, in those days, widows were the most vulnerable, some of the most weak in society. Uh, It's not like today where, you know, widows may be able to go out and have jobs and careers on their own and that kind of thing. Uh, And it's certainly not like today in the sense that, you know, if a husband passes away and and leaves a wife behind, most of the husband's possessions uh, are then passed on to the wife. In that day... Uh, most of the husband's possessions, the estate, if there was an estate, was passed on to the firstborn son, not the wife. And so oftentimes there was no provision left in an estate for a widow. Uh, And so widows very often uh, were seen as kind of the down and out. They They were considered some of the most vulnerable and weak in society. If you read the Old Testament, there are all kinds of laws in the Old Testament about making provisions and caring for widows and orphans and sojourners, strangers in the land. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, those three categories of people are grouped together as some of the weakest and most vulnerable in society. Widows, orphans, the fatherless, and the sojourner. And if you read the Old Testament, there are tons and tons of laws uh, regarding how Israel was to treat uh, these most vulnerable and weakest of people in society. You read the book of uh, Ruth, you'll see a picture of this, right? Where Ruth and Naomi, they're in a distant land and, uh, and they lose their, uh, Naomi loses her son and Ruth loses her husband. So Naomi and now her young daughter-in-law, Ruth, are left with nothing. And so Naomi decides to make the trek back to her homeland. And, and that's where Ruth says, you know, where you go, I go. Where, where uh, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And, and Ruth follows Naomi. And, and Ruth goes out into the field to gather grain, right? To gather grain that's left behind from the harvest. Well, that grain was left there intentionally, on purpose, because one of the laws was... If anything falls to the ground while you're harvesting, don't pick it up. Leave it so that widows and orphans can come in after your harvesters go through and they can have something to eat. There was this Old Testament law. There are all kinds of laws regarding how widows and orphans and sojourners are to be treated. Much more than that, if you read through the Old Testament, you see God's heart and His concern for widows. Constantly in the Old Testament, 
he refers to himself as a father to the fatherless, as a protector of the widow. And so God's heart, his concern, part of his character is that he loves and he cares for infinitely for the most weak and vulnerable in society. Now with that in mind, that's the context in which Jesus is teaching this parable. And and when they hear that this unjust judge that doesn't fear God or respect man is not giving justice to the widow, it angers the people who hear it. And that's what it ought to do with us. Because this judge is not just uh, not just shunning one of the most helpless and weak of his society, the very one whom he is given to protect, he is spitting in the face of God. Because God cares for that widow. And God cares for the orphan. We're meant to feel that when we hear this parable. We're meant to, to hear this cry of the widow and we are to feel her, uh, her anguish. Now, what does that have to do with our prayer? Well, if we kind of take it on the surface level, we can think that we're to pray like this widow, right? Unceasingly. We're supposed to take our requests to God uh, until we finally beat him down enough to where he'll give us what we want. But, but that's not... That's not the call of this parable whatsoever. The call of this parable is that God is to reorient our desires and bring them in line with his own desires. Our hearts are supposed to want what God's heart wants. And what God wants for this widow is justice. That's what it has to do with our prayers. What Jesus is teaching us is he is teaching us that our character is shaped and formed by the prayers that we pray. And as we patiently persevere and wait on God, as we pray, God is preparing us for his second coming by taking our hearts and molding them and making them like his own heart. Practical example of this. How many of you have prayed for a friend or a loved one who is sick? And you go to God and you pray, God, make this person well. Heal this person of their sickness. And God doesn't answer that prayer. They don't get better. So we just stop praying. <laughs> we, we lose faith, we lose heart, and we just think, well, God has said no. But what we've done there when we stop praying, is we have lost sight and we have not come in line with the desires of God. We think maybe God doesn't want to heal that person of their sickness. That's not true. That's not true. There is nothing that any of us, there is not one thing that any of us suffer from that the Lord will not heal. There is nothing that we can possibly suffer from that a good resurrection won't fix. Right? Even if that person dies, God has not ignored our prayer. As a matter of fact, God is going to be faithful to answer that prayer and bringing that person back to life again one day. And our greatest desire for that person who is sick ought not just to be that they feel relief from their sickness, but that God would prepare them to stand 
face to face with him. Because that's what's going to happen one day. Our prayers are too short-sighted. And so what God is doing as we faithfully pray, as we persistently pray, is God is taking our heart and he's changing our heart and he's making it more and more like the heart of Jesus. He will answer our prayers. And he's going to start by changing you. <laughs> he may not change your circumstances. He, he may not change your situation. But he will change you. And one day, when the resurrection comes, and the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, he'll get to the circumstances as well. But that day isn't here yet. And so we patiently wait, and we patiently pray, and we allow the Holy Spirit to change our hearts to prepare us for that day. Are you ready? Are you ready to stand face to face with God? That's where you are to be headed. Sometimes when we pray, it doesn't seem like God is answering so quickly, right? Here he's talking to people who died over 2,000 years ago, right? It, it says here in the text, he will give justice to them speedily. Well, sometimes speedily doesn't seem so speedily, <laughs> Sometimes it seems like God is delaying justice for his people. But we have to remember that passage that Pastor Matt read from 2 Peter chapter 3. For God, a thousand years is like a day. And a day is like a thousand years. And this word here, speedily, doesn't necessarily have to do with the time in which God will answer prayer, but the surety of his answer to those prayers. When, when Jesus says here that God will give them justice speedily, he's, he's not, necess not necessarily talking about your time frame or my time frame. What he's talking about is the surety of God's faithfulness to answer his prayers. There is coming a day when Jesus will return in his glory and he will set this world right. And that day is surely coming and God will answer every single prayer that you might think that he has turned a deaf ear to on that day but in the meantime he's working in your heart patience he's working in your heart perseverance just a little bit longer just a little bit longer cry out to him day and night and God will change your heart he may not change your circumstances right away but he will change your heart that brings us to the last point, point three. Prayer prepares us for the return of Christ. Prayer prepares us for the return of Christ. Don't give up. Don't grow weary of praying. Right? A, a commentator that I read when I was preparing this sermon said this. He's a British commentary, commentator, so uh, some of this language is kind of funky. Prayer is not a parlor exercise, perfunctory and tidy, right? Sometimes we like to think that prayer is this, these nice, tight, clean sayings that we'll go to God and say, right? We even memorize certain prayers, and, and we think that prayer, that that's the common part of prayer life. But, but prayer isn't always so nice and tidy and clean, right? Here's what he says. Prayer is a battle. Prayer is a battle that is ongoing and ever-present. Hope against hope. Imploring God for the realization of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. 
Isn't that exactly what Jesus taught us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the prayer that God would return. That Christ would return and set this world right again. That's the prayer that we are to be praying in light of this passage. One of the ways that your faith is proven to be true and genuine is by faithful perseverance under trial. Perseverance is a mark of a genuine faith, right? And you know it takes a whole lot of faith. It takes a whole lot of this faith to pray, right? It, it, it takes faith that God hears you. It, it takes faith that God even exists. It, it takes faith in God's love for you. It, it takes faith that God is sovereign and that he has the power to answer those prayers that you're praying to him. It takes a whole lot of faith to pray. And this is really important. If you cease to pray, if your prayer life ceases, it is a sign and symptom that your faith is wavering. Your faith and your prayer life are so tied together that if you cease to pray, it's a sign that your faith in God is wavering. St. Augustine said it this way. He said, when faith fails... Prayer dies. It's a great saying. When faith fails, prayer dies. When you stop praying, you are saying essentially that God is worse than this unjust judge in this parable because he doesn't even listen to you. He doesn't care what you say or what you want. At least the unjust judge listened and eventually gave in. But if we stop praying, we're essentially saying, well, you know, whatever, God, you know, if you're real, you're not good, and you don't want anything to do with me, and you can't answer my prayer, so I'm just going to stop it right here. Right? You're, you're saying that God's worse than this unjust judge if you cease to pray. You say that he doesn't listen to you or care for you at all. But brothers and sisters, let's don't be so quick to put God on trial. Right? We, we can read this parable and think that we're going to put God on trial, but here's, here's the thrust of the, of the passage here. It, it's in verse 8. Jesus doesn't put God's character on trial. No, he, he assures you, God hears your prayers, and he will answer them in his good time. But will you be faithful? That's the question that Jesus asks. He, he says, God will, he's not like that unjust judge. He, he will hear your prayers, and he will change your heart, and he will give justice to those who cry out to him day and night. Will you stay faithful? That's Jesus' question. Will you stay faithful to pray? Prayer prepares us for the return of Christ because it gets us ready to stand before God face to face. That's what prayer does. It, it rots about this change in your heart that prepares you to stand before God. We need to stay faithful in our prayers even when it doesn't seem like they're working. Now, I don't want to leave you here. I'm almost done. Uh, just a couple more minutes. But I don't want to leave you here because if you're anything like me, all of you struggle to pray. I struggle to pray consistently and regularly. But I, I don't want to leave you there. I, I want to take just a few minutes to diagnose our own hearts. And I want to talk about a couple of reasons why it is that I think that we don't pray. Okay? And then hopefully, as we, as we kind of dissect our hearts as to why it is that we oftentimes fail to pray, we can see what the Scripture has to say to us 
And hopefully it will be an encouragement to us to persevere in our prayers, okay? So here, here are a few thoughts on why we don't pray and how I think the Scripture addresses these issues. Number one, we don't pray because we're too self-sufficient. We are way too self-sufficient, right? And, and this is a sneaky, sneaky trap that the devil sets, right? He, he will lull us to sleep, and we will reach a point in our life where we feel like we are perfectly capable of handling anything and everything that comes our way. Even when something tragic or something horrible happens and we face trial and we face uh, suffering, we think, I'm just going to take it a day at a time. Uh, I, I'm just going to handle what, what it is that comes to me and I'm going to pull up my bootstraps and I'm going to you know, make it through it. Well, the Christian faith is not, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. The Christian faith is, I don't have any arms to pull myself up with, right? The Christian life is not a life of self-sufficiency. It is a life of self-dependence. It's a life of dependency. Dependency upon God. We set out in our own strength, and we only go to prayer when God, or when things get so bad that we feel like we can't take it anymore. We need to recognize that we are daily and desperately dependent upon the Lord for every single thing that comes our way. We're too self-sufficient. We need to rely on Jesus more. The second thing, second reason why I think we don't pray uh, the way that we ought is that we are too easily angered towards God. We put God on trial very quickly, don't we? Why would God allow such a thing to happen to me? Why would God allow such bad things to happen to such good people? And we put God on the docket like he is the one that is to be on trial. But this passage quickly rebukes us. Right? This passage reminds us that it is not God who is on trial. No, he hears our prayers. He, he stands ready and willing to answer those prayers in his perfect timing and in ways that you can't even realize yet that he is going to answer them it's not god who should be on trial it's us verse 8 jesus asked when i return will i find you faithful god is working a patient perseverance in your heart don't give up steady on keep on praying Will God find you faithful in the end? That's the question we ought to be asking. No matter what comes your way, when Christ returns, will you stand faithful? That's the question that this text brings to us. So we need to realize that our anger towards God is completely misdirected. God hears us and He will answer us. But will we persevere? Will we uh, continue to pray even when our situation and our circumstances don't change. Number three, we are too comfortable. <laughs> we are too comfortable and mediocrity sets in. And I think this is mediocrity. I think it's something that plagues uh, the church in America today. I think it's something that we're starting to see with the shifts in our culture and those kinds of things. Uh, you're going to start to see that change a little bit. <laughs> that mediocrity is not going to be uh, an acceptable Christianity anymore, <laughs> right? Uh, this kind of cultural, I just do it because my granddaddy and my great-granddaddy was a Christian, and so that's what I am too. That, that's not going to stand in the days that are to come. Right? 
Mediocrity is not an option for the believer. But oftentimes we get too comfortable, and, and, and that's, the, that's what happens. Satan will not always attack you head on. You know, we think of Satan and his attacks as that roaring lion that's crouching around the corner that's just ready to pounce you face head on, right? He, he's ready to, to knock you down and take you out. But oftentimes, that's not the way Satan works. He does work that way. But a lot of times what Satan does is he causes you to question God's goodness. This is exactly what he did in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really tell you to do that? Right? That, that's, that's the oldest lie in the book. He will lull you to sleep and make you comfortable. If any of you guys have ever read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, Lewis brings, he does a great job at bringing out this principle. And, and this Christian that's struggling with his faith uh, is, is brought, uh, or this, this demon essentially that's assigned to tempt him and to tear him down, uh, says, I've got him in a place where he's really comfortable, and that's really good. Right? That's, that's what Satan does. He'll try to lull you to sleep. We become then very concerned about the sins of other people and not very much concerned about our own sin. We become very concerned that the pastor has been preaching for 40 minutes and I'm hungry, but we pay very little attention to the fact that we haven't sat down and cracked our Bibles all week long. If that's you, mediocrity is set in. You're too comfortable. You need to get on your knees and plea before God to awaken your heart, to bring new life in your prayer, to help you persevere in your faith. And God will surely do it. Last thing, number four, we, are too, we feel too spiritually dry sometimes. Prayer is a practice of a sanctified heart. That's a true statement, isn't it? Prayer is, is the practice of a sanctified heart. But sometimes our hearts don't feel very sanctified. Whether we're struggling with sin or maybe you're struggling with the effects of sin, sometimes we just don't feel worthy enough to go before God and pray. But here's the good news. We don't approach God, our Father, in our own righteousness. The writer of Hebrews doesn't say, just barge on into the throne room and approach with confidence and boldness. No, he says, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens before us, since that is true, we are able to go before the Father with confidence and boldness and take our request to Him. Brothers and sisters, when you feel too spiritually dry to pray, you don't go to God in your own strength. Don't rely on your own strength to go to God and pray. Rely on the strength of your Savior, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again. You may not feel worthy to approach God at times, and if that's you this morning, I'll say you're exactly right. <laughs> you're not worthy to approach God the Father. But Jesus is. And he's standing before God the Father right now, interceding on your behalf, praying prayers that are groans that are too deep for words, the Scripture says. And so go to God in His strength, and He'll help you to persevere to the end. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You so much for this passage. And, and Father, I pray that <clears throat> as we face trials and, uh, and hardships of different kinds, Father, that You would help us to be a people who trust in your goodness, who rely on your character, who, who have hearts that are 
changed and who desire the things that you want. Lord, I, I pray that you would help our prayers to persevere and to help our faith persevere all the way to the end. Lord, help us to never cease praying. Help us to go before you confidently and boldly every single day so that one day when we stand before you, we can hear the words that we all so long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. We pray these things in your name. Amen.